Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. With a cold and episode 33, Inside Baseball. Two to Harvey Keene. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Ah, the boys of summer. What a long winter they've had, but now comes the spring, and more than three months into a lockout of players by Major League Baseball. Thursday evening brought splendid news. This is CNBC's Shepard Smith. After a 99-day baseball lockout, it's play ball time almost. In the last hour, the Players Association Executive Committee and representatives for the players voted to accept the league's latest offer on a new labor deal. It's still subject to ratification by the owners and the players, and if approved, it would pave the way for, get this, a full 162-game season. Which is a whole lot more optimistic than baseball commissioner Rob Manfred was back in early December. Our committee of club representatives committed to the process. They offered compromise after compromise and hung in past the deadline to make sure that we exhausted every possibility of reaching an agreement before the cancellation of games. It wasn't a surprising sentiment at the time because for 101 years, the main duty of the baseball commissioner has been by any means possible to prevent major league players from earning what the free market would bear. Even if that meant owners colluding, such as Commissioner Peter Uberoth engineered to halt expensive free agent signings in the mid-80s. Back in the 1980s, baseball players were able to prove collusion against the major league owners in terms of contracts because they, it, it came out that the commissioner back then had said, don't sign them to these big contracts. Author John Feinstein on PBS NewsHour. Not that the players then or now were going broke, exactly. In the past 20 years, the average player salary has just more than doubled to $4.2 million. That average, though, is heavily skewed by a relative handful of superstars. For example, future Hall of Famer Mike Trout of the California Angels earns $37 million. Meanwhile, the Pittsburgh Pirates' entire 26-player payroll is $29 million. For a frame of reference, the owner's revenues have more than tripled to more than $10 billion as the team's asset value also rose 11% annually to $2.2 billion. If you find yourself clucking, as many do, that the greedy players already get paid stupid money to play a kid's game, let me remind you of some other uniquely talented individuals who rake it in at an entirely different level. Peter Jackson, the Lord of the Lord of the Rings, last year earned $580 million. Bruce Springsteen earned $435 million. Jay-Z earned $340 
million. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, $270 million. All that dough to sing and play pretend. Meantime, last year, the CEOs of these companies you've never heard of, Oak Street Health, Good RX Holdings, Open Door Technologies, Palantir Technologies, and Paycom Software, among them took home $2.6 billion. That's salary and other compensation, and it's more than $500 million apiece, 13.5 times more than baseball's highest paid player, and not one of those guys can hit a slider. That $1.6 billion, by the way, represents the entire payrolls of 18 major league teams, among them the Chicago Cubs, San Francisco Giants, Texas Rangers, and Miami Marlins. Funny how we don't sniff about the outlandish earnings of superstars in those realms. Now, the difference between, say, Philadelphia Phillies star pitcher Ranger Suarez, who earned $461,000 last year, and Jay-Z, or the CEO of Paycom Software, is that Suarez plies his trade in a marketplace not governed by the usual free market physics of supply and demand. Which is why this year's contract bargaining drama is destined to be played out again in four years and quadrennially evermore. And so I wondered what a dyed in the wool free marketeer would think about the current dispute, which hinges on when players are entitled to cash in on their full asset value. Alan R. Sanderson is a professor of economics at the University of Chicago, an avowed free marketeer who lectures on the economics of sport. His department is, of course, the hallowed stomping grounds of the late Milton Friedman and a mecca of free marketism. He's also affiliated with the Heartland Institute, which is, and I'm being diplomatic here, a highly conservative proponent of deregulation and an advocate for companies and industries I personally find loathsome, fossil fuel and tobacco being at the top of my list. But he has baseball in his blood. Alan, welcome to Bully Pulpit. Thank you. If there were a breathalyzer for baseball consumption, I have read, you'd blow like a 2.6. What's your background? Oh, I don't know. I, I followed baseball, I guess, from a relatively early age. I grew up mainly in Idaho. We had, at that point, it was called a Class C. The Magic Valley Cowboys were our team. They were a Phillies franchise, so I, I followed them. Where you became acquainted with one of my early heroes, Richie Allen, later Dick Allen. Yeah, he was uh, one of the best hitters I've ever seen in terms of hitting the ball hard. Yeah, I worked uh, part-time in the summer and occasionally would give then Richie instead of Dick, which he became later, right home from the ball game. And then when I came to Chicago to graduate school, it was about the time that he came as a free agent to the White Sox. And the White Sox are the, the South Side team, so I got followed them with even more interest when he was on the White Sox. Well, Alan will figure into this conversation again. Meantime, though, if you've got a sack, could you please explain for me the unique economics of baseball? Well, you can 
twisted any number of ways, but it's all about money. <laughs> there are two pigs and one trough. It's about the money, no matter if you want to talk about a luxury tax or when somebody becomes arbitration eligible or how the draft is structured or, or whatever. In most industries in the United States, whether it's Saks or Macy's or the department store, a decent accountant and economist could figure out how much an employee is worth. If I say, how much should we pay that person who sells sweaters for us or perfumes? There is an answer to that question that can be determined. The same is true for the guy who flips hamburgers or makes French fries from McDonald's. But in terms of major sports leagues, if I say how much of this pile of money should go to the players and how much should go to the owners, there is no right answer and no way to determine it. It's strictly a function of how well can we bargain? How much leverage do we have? Because in the term that gets overused today in the legal world, there's no amount of money that the owners deserve. And there is no amount of money that the players deserve. Can you explain the, the function of the luxury tax briefly? Well, if I'm the CEO of Pepsi, best news I could get in the morning when I get out of bed and flip on the TV is that there was a dead rat found in a Coke can. Why that's going to drop Coke sales and maybe drive them out of business. Or maybe the best news McDonald's could get is that there was a rat found in a Wendy's hamburger because it reduces or eliminates the competition. But in sports leagues, as opposed to any other industries in the United States, the Chicago Cubs have to have the St. Louis Cardinals stay in business. They have to have somebody to play. The game has to be uncertain. And leagues, all leagues, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, take your pick, go through different structures and processes to maintain this competitive balance. That draft is one way to create competitive balance. Because poorer teams from the year before get the first picks in the draft. Yes, a payroll cap or a salary cap, which baseball does not have, but most of the leagues do, is another way to ensure that they're about equal. And whether it's a payroll cap or a salary cap or a luxury tax in this case, which is if you spend more than a certain amount of money on your players, you pay a tax. You pay your players a certain amount of money. If you go over the threshold or the payroll, you are taxed a certain amount. It's a way to discourage, let's call them the New York Yankees, or the New York Mets now, from spending too much money on, on players. Because if you're a large market team, even if your owner isn't a multi-billionaire, you get more money from media deals and so forth, and even at the turnstiles, to afford a much bigger payroll than, let's just say, I don't know, Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or one of the other smaller market teams. If you well, need to have basic competition you can't have three or four teams lording over everybody else. Yes, that's correct. My guess is that on a per capita basis, New York City and Cincinnati have about the same number of pizza restaurants. And New York and Cincinnati have about the same number of dry cleaning establishments. There's no such thing as a small market 
city when it comes to dry cleaning establishments or when it comes to pizza restaurants. But there is in sports because the Yankees can have, you know, 10 million people. In Cincinnati, I have no idea what the population is, maybe 500,000 with the 30 Major League Baseball teams. They're approximately in 30 cities. They're not quite 30 because some have two, but they're approximately one team per town in baseball. And that's what creates big markets and small markets. And that creates the disparities in revenues, whether it's fannies in the seats or television viewership or the number of hot dogs and beer they can sell. If you wish to have a game worth watching, you have to have some sort of competitive parity. And in order to have competitive parity, you have to have economic parity. Yeah. And again, in all of these comparisons, the word approximate (laughs) comes in. Because in, in the end, who wins a game is who's the better player or who's the better team. But it's also luck or chance. That plays a huge role in this. Baseball, like many an industry, operates under a union contract that's negotiated, I think it's every four years, with the Major League Players Association, the Players Union. Yes. So it's like the retail industry or the trucking industry or telecom or airline pilots or government workers, except that it isn't. Exactly 100 years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that our national pastime was a sport and not a business. In those days, of course, the product, which was baseball games, was delivered locally, and those games obviously didn't cross state lines. So were deemed not to be interstate commerce and therefore not to be regulated by antitrust law. So the leagues had wide berth to restrict the players and the team owners alike. Is that correct? Can one team pick up and move cities in the NFL? Yes. In baseball, I think if one team wanted to pick up a move, the Chicago White Sox wanted to move to, you know, Milwaukee or something like that. It's not obvious because it failed in a strange sort of way to get tested in court as to whether the league could prevent that or not. If the league could prevent it, that's another avenue in which the antitrust exemption would would apply. But that has not been tested yet. But the antitrust exemption also had a bearing on labor laws. Let's go to 1969 and the Kurt Flood case. Uh, He, as you know, was a talented outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, who was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies in a multiplayer deal. But essentially, Kurt Flood for our friend Richie Allen. And Flood said, I'm not going And the Cardinal said, look, we have something in your contract called the reserve clause, and you don't get to determine your own destiny. We are permitted by contract and by the U.S. Supreme Court to treat you as an asset and trade you to another team if we so choose. So Flood sued baseball. And here he was with uh, late blowhard sportscaster Howard Cosell who spoke to the aggrieved player at the time. You're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages. What's your retort to that? Uh, A well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. Now, probably the better term would have been indentured servant. Either way, Flood 
was sort of the Rosa Parks of baseball, right? Or, or maybe the Joe Hill of baseball, martyred for the cause. Kurt Flood's career died over this lawsuit. And uh, Major League Baseball wasn't feeling so good itself. Well, the crocuses are in bloom in New York and the azaleas are out in the Carolinas, but one important thing is still missing from the springtime scene in the United States so far this year, big league baseball. ABC sports legend Jim McKay. So there was a strike in 1972, another in 81, another in 1994, and a previous owner lockout in 1973. But the change was coming in that same year while ruling five to four against Kurt Flood's antitrust case, the Supreme Court asked Congress to address what it thought was horrendous inequity built into the system of Major League Baseball. The court says, you know, we're going to vote against Flood on this, but this just isn't right. And turned to Congress and said, you fix it. This was New York Yankees star center fielder Bernie Williams in 1994 testifying before the House Education and Labor Subcommittee on Labor Management Relations. I am not a lawyer. I am not a politician. But I, but I am both a player and a fan. And it seems clear to me that the current system we have for negotiating baseball labor contracts doesn't work. Something is wrong when the, players, when the playoffs are lost, when the World Series is lost. Something has to be changed. And that culminated in a piece of legislation that was passed in 98 that was unofficially called the Kurt Flood Act. And that's what restricted baseball's antitrust exemption to labor. Even though that he lost in court, Flood, at least for the benefit of his colleagues, prevailed uh, long before the 1998 legislation after one strike and one lockout and all the harsh publicity for the game, the warring parties struck a compromise in 1973. It was this. If you came to the league and after a certain number of years you had performed for the club, you were entitled to go to binding arbitration to determine what your your salary for the following year would be. And then a certain number of years after that, uh, you were permitted to test the market in free agency and cut whatever deal you wished. Yeah, that's correct. They could file for arbitration after three years and then three more, they can become free agents. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're 10 years dead. I never died, says he. But the system that evolved after Kurt Flood sued for free agency, it didn't necessarily win ongoing labor management peace. If anything, it it seemed to ensure ongoing bargaining conflict. As I said at the outset, we're talking here with the players union on one side and the owners on the other. It's basically two pigs and one trough. You can argue around the edges. Should we have 140 games or 162? Shall we have a designated hitter in both leagues? Shall we have a pitcher's clock? And it's, you know, how strongly does each side feel about this issue? And we'll give you this, but we want this in return. Even in the uh, post-Kurt Flood Act 
era, there's still an aspect of indentured servitude, it seems to me. I mean, to get to the big leagues, professional players have to devote an average of 11 years, some in the minor leagues, with an average 2021 salary of, this is unbelievable, $6,884 a year. And then, you know, once they get to the bigs, they're six years of getting maybe the major league minimum of $570,000 a year before they can uh, get the benefits of arbitration and then free agency. In other words, they devote the prime of their athletic lives betting on the come before they can ever, you know, tap into the perversely big money, don't they? But that may be not all that much different from other occupations. We have students at the University of Chicago who pay us $75,000 a year to be here and hope that in four years they graduate and move to Wall Street. Or people in our business school who are giving us $75,000 a year in hopes two years later that they will be on Wall Street making a million bucks. Just at this group, this small group, it's what economists call people who get economic rent. That means, in a sense, economic profits above you know, what is realistic. If I say that over the course of a life, you know, a human being, a, a typical male or female human being may make $3 million in the United States, and you're talking about some of these players making $3 million in a year. So we're talking about significant amounts of money here. Still, by the time these players, the best of the players, the best, the cream of the crop, get the big payday, you know, some 11 years, say, into their career, they are often at age 30 plus. They are literally beginning the downward slide of physical ability. And this is the thing that I learned only recently uh, and it was jaw-dropping for me. On average, Major league players never get to free agencies where the big payday lies. The average major league lifespan is 5.6 years. So the average big leaguer works on spec his whole career and never cashes in. Same is true in the NFL. National Football League, the average life expectancy, I mean, living versus dying, but being in the league is under four years. So you never achieve free agency. I want to ask you if the, any of this breaks down into ideological lines. And I don't ask it for no reason. Your resume, the University of Chicago and the Heartland Institute would suggest that you are a diehard free marketeer. But in this kind of convoluted labor management case, I don't even know where that would what that would predict your views are on who should prevail in a labor action? Well, baseball, to the extent anybody cares, not a free market. Okay? In terms of we don't have a lot of identical workers or a lot of identical owners or a lot of identical products. And, you know, people take risks. Uh, players take risks. Owners take risks. I don't have a dog in this fight. I am not sympathetic with either side necessarily. A number of years ago, I can't remember whom, I think a Hall of Fame pitcher, but I'm not sure. He said, you know, we players don't deserve all of the money we're getting. 
that owners don't deserve it even more. I'm not sure which side of that fight I, I would come down. There's no equation that I can draw on the board that says the owners deserve that money or equation I can draw on the board that says the players deserve that money. One of the things that I think is interesting is that you could run a risk that both sides will be made worse off, not because fans hate one side more than the other, but the baseball itself is getting fairly boring. And by that, the baseball analytics is fairly clear. If I want to win this game, what I want my hitters to do is swing for the fences. Sure, they may strike out a lot, but they're going to hit that occasional home run. And it's that power that wins baseball games. So I want to swing for the fences if I want to win. But I also want to sell tickets and hot dogs and beer. And if fans don't want to come and watch guys strike out for four hours, they may reduce the number of games they go to. They may reduce the amount of TV time they watch games. I think the game itself, and especially to sort of a high-paced social media, Instagram world that we're, we live in now, instant gratification, baseball is a pretty slow game. I like it. But it may well be crippling the game. Moneyball brought some analytics to it, but it may well be that analytics could kill the game. Hmm. Yeah, there used to be schools of thought, you know, uh, inside baseball, bunting and stealing bases versus, you know, swinging for the fences and stuff like that. That's gone yeah. now. There are no more philosophies. There are only the numbers which say use a defensive shift. Swing for the fences. Don't worry about strikeouts. Don't steal bases. Don't bunt because all of the analytics say that it's. Uh, yeah. And in the familiar terms, baseball is almost never in play. The fielders are just standing there picking their noses while guys are swinging for the fences and striking out. It's just home runs and strikeouts. All right. Now, with the stipulation that you are a free marketeer, this is as we've established, as manipulated a marketplace or as unique a marketplace as exists in terms of player management relations, what would you do to make sure that the, these kinds of negotiations and the bad faith that swirls around them would just go away in favor of incremental changes that need to be made with time? Why does it always have to be a showdown, what would you do to prevent that? That's a good question. It's not like the owners have a monopoly. So do the players. I mean, we're talking about monopoly versus monopoly. Neither side of this has anything that resembles free markets. Okay? It's the absence of free markets. What I would actually do would be to increase the number of teams, move from 30 up to, let's call it 72 reduce the power on both sides of the market. We don't have enough baseball teams in the country. If I wanted to really move in the free market direction, yeah, I want to expand the number of teams so that these 30 guys can't hold a monopoly. But diluting the quality of the labor pool and, and then yeah, the, it the game. Yeah, the quality, but I'm telling you, you take the numbers off those uniforms and the names, and there's not one fan in a hundred who could tell the difference between a triple A player 
and a major league player, they're identical. I don't think it matters a whole lot. Hmm. This is just you trying to get the Pocatello pioneers or whatever into the bigs, isn't it? My team was the Magic Valley Cowboys. Alan, thank you very much. Bob, my pleasure. All right, we're done here. Holy Pulpit is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Creative Services in Lansing, Michigan. Tape clips came from ESPN, ABC Sports, C-SPAN, and the Woody Guthrie Archive. Holy Pulpit is a production of Booksmart Studios. I'm Bob Garfield.